Hello and welcome to Inside Exercise. I'm Emeritus Professor Glenn McConnell from Victoria University in Australia. The idea behind Inside Exercise is to bring to you the absolute who's who of exercise research. So exercise physiology, exercise metabolism and exercise and health. And what I'm really wanting is for you to get your exercise information from the research experts rather than from influencers. And indeed, today I'm bringing to you Professor Margie Davenport from the University of Alberta in Canada. She's an expert on exercise and pregnancy. So we talked about the effects of exercise on the mother and on the offspring. So talking about exercise before pregnancy, during pregnancy, and both on the mother's health, the baby's health during the pregnancy, the baby's health after the pregnancy, the effect of exercise during pregnancy on preeclampsia levels, gestational diabetes levels, etc. I found it very interesting. I think you will too. So stick around. You'll see in the notes that there are timestamps. So if you're on YouTube, you can look down and you'll see in blue different times. If you click on those, it'll move to that section. And on the other platforms, you'll see the times, but you can't click on them. That means you can jump around a little bit, but you know to get the full context and the full understanding of the area, it's much better, of course, to watch the whole podcast. Also, if you can do me a favor and help get the message out about Inside Exercise, if you can please like subscribe, leave comments, etc. The algorithm will tend to then suggest inside exercise when people do searches on, on a particular aspect of exercise. For those of you watching on video, you'll notice that my hairstyle is quite dramatically different today. I managed to mess up, so I use a clipper on my hair and I didn't realize it was on the lowest possible setting, so I basically I had to get rid of it all. Okay, so enjoy the chat. Hi Margie, how are you? Welcome to Inside Exercise. I'm great, thanks. Great to be here. Great. So we're going to talk about exercise and pregnancy, yeah, which is interesting. And as, as we'll see here and there, I've done a little bit on that sort of in the periphery, more with sort of rodent studies. Um, we'll be talking obviously more about humans today. But um, what I like to do at the start is sometimes just ask, you know, how did you get into exercise research? Were you like an exercise or a sports person or were you a researcher first and then you moved that way? How did you end up doing this sort of stuff? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, actually, so I started, I was an athlete uh, for a long time, uh, and I, I was a former national team athlete uh, in synchronized swimming, and so way back when, I was training 68 hours a day, uh, wow. loving life, enjoying Montreal, doing a little bit of school on the side, and uh, then I had a career-ending injury and had to figure oh. out what I was going to do with the rest of my life. Um, and so I moved into um, going back to university again and decided kinesiology was where it's at. It's uh, as close as you can get to being, a, being an athlete uh, just by studying exercise and exercise mm. physiology. Um, but I have a strong history of um, obesity and diabetes in my family. And so uh, mm. when I was thinking about you know, doing research and going on to graduate school, I was pretty convinced I was going to solve diabetes and obesity with exercise, uh, very naive 20 years ago. Um, but the only person that was in the faculty that was doing that type of work was an exercise physiologist specializing in um, pregnancy and postpartum. Mm -hmm. So I went and knocked on her door and asked to have her take me on. And she pretty much said no, but I finally convinced her to say yes. <laughs> Um, and uh, the rest is history. I went into the lab and I fell in love with the physiology of pregnancy, postpartum, ended up doing my PhD in uh, postpartum exercise and I uh, haven't looked back. Ah, wow. That's interesting. Well, sorry to hear about the diabetes uh, in the family, et cetera, and obesity. 
But I um, mean, even though you're naive, I think exercise, you know, exercising, and I, I assume you're talking about type two, yeah? Type two diabetes? Yeah, type two. Yep, and I should say, if people want to hear more about type two diabetes, they can uh, look at earlier podcasts of John Hawley and uh, other ones. But um, you know, I think it's fair to say if you exercise uh, regularly and eat well, you can maybe not cure it, but but you know, set it back a long way. Have you had much luck? It's one thing knowing that; it's another thing trying to get your family members to to do it. So when I retired, I uh, was the annoying child that moved back home for six months. And uh, as a <clears throat> former athlete at that point in time, I got both my parents up and walking and they ended oh, cool. up doing uh, marathons after that. And they even to today, 20 years later, uh, they still exercise probably more than I do. They're unbelievable. And to date, no diabetes. Wow. There you go. There you go. You just that wasn't a setup. That's you've just I think you have cured diabetes. There you go. Um, now, the other interesting thing I thought of while you were discussing your background, which sounds very impressive, and sorry about your career injuring, uh, ending injury as well, um, was, you know, how you ended up doing something more health related um, than athletes. So a lot of us, you know, I used to be a distance runner and started off, you know, sort of applied and then ended up more, you know, uh, mechanistic and health related. Did you at the start, were you wanting to work with athletes and things or were you were you actually quite keen because of the family background to do something health related? Mm -hmm. So kind of a mix. I mean, exercise, pregnancy and postpartum is kind of interesting 20 years ago because there was not a lot of information at that point in time. Uh, we certainly were not talking about uh, elite level athletes continuing during pregnancy and, you know, returning mm. to sport postpartum like we do today. So it's uh, really a different world now. Mm. Um, yeah. So it was, I guess, a combination between personal history, uh, really wanting to sort of dive into that side of it. And as much as I would have liked to, I just don't think the opportunities were really there. Mm. Oh, absolutely. So that's interesting. So one thing you did say, you wanted to give a bit of a brief history on. Um, so why don't you expand on that a little bit? So what were we saying 20 years ago? Was it sort of like women shouldn't exercise really when they're pregnant? Or you know, what was the thinking back then? Yeah, so 20 years ago, uh, physical activity was recommended, but we really had a lot of um, questions and concerns about whether or not if you exercise too much, if you exercise at too high of an intensity um, or did the wrong type of activity if it was going to potentially harm either the mother or the baby. But, you know, going back even farther in history, you know, it's funny because, um, you know, things sort of go in waves and we almost come full circle. Um, but back in like 1400 BC, um, you know, there's excerpts in um, that, that are out there that basically are suggesting that labor and delivery of really um, sedentary sort of higher born people were actually a lot worse than they are for people who are um, the slaves that were working out in the fields. Um, mm. By the time we got to like the 19th century, um, women were being told that they should be confined, stay inside, avoid all strenuous mm. activity uh, because they might dislodge their uterus. Um, but then as we sort of moved into, um, you know, more in the last about 50 years, uh, the first guideline for exercise and pregnancy was in 1985 with the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. And that was the first to really start to recommend sort of broad span that um, it's okay to exercise during pregnancy, but there were a lot of limits that were placed on it. So 
Um, the most common one we hear about is don't exercise above 140 beats per minute. That was from 1985. It was reversed okay. a couple of years later. Uh, when I was pregnant with my second um, nine years ago, uh, I was told, you know, you shouldn't exercise above 140 beats per minute. And I had to sort of stop them and say, well, actually, there's more research since then in the last 30 years. Um, but I was on a call with uh, an athlete group uh, just a couple of days ago, last Friday. And we're still hearing that today. We've had Canadian guidelines come out back in 2019. Basically, mm. you know, there isn't 140 beat per minute limit right here in our country and that that information is still getting out there, which is really unfortunate and why doing podcasts and uh, the mm. work that you do is so important. The knowledge translation is really not happening. Okay. Well, that's interesting. So the 140 has stuck around despite uh, more updated guidelines. Mm -hmm. So what is the what is the sort of, is there sort of like a cutoff nowadays or, you know, what is the intensity and in, in, I guess we'll get to duration sort of guidelines nowadays? Mm -hmm. So in the 2019 Canadian guideline for physical activity throughout pregnancy, we did recommend a moderate intensity. So 140 would still fall into that moderate intensity. Um, and the reason for that is we actually, at that point in time, didn't have a lot of information about more vigorous intensities. Um, and so anybody who wanted to exercise in that more vigorous intensity zone uh, needed to speak to their healthcare provider, get a little bit more guidance, make sure that baby was continuing to grow appropriately, that they were gaining the appropriate amount of weight um, so that baby could develop well. Um, but since that time, there's actually been uh, more information that's been coming out. The research has become quite active in this area specifically. Um, and so, you know, we're the general guidance is still kind of like that 80 to 90% of max is what you shouldn't be going over. Um, but work from our lab has started to change that specifically. Um, there was a number of two studies uh, a number of years ago, which degraded uh, increases in activity. It was a 25 minute protocol. By the time they got to the end of 25 or 30 minutes, uh, they'd be above 90% of max and they monitored uh, fetal heart rate and what they found was that in some cases that the baby's heart rate would slow, which is potentially suggestive that there's um, um, uh, fetal distress happening. Um, and because of that, all guidelines around the world pretty much said don't go above either 80% or 90% of max. But when we're talking about elite athletes um, who are now trying to stay in sport for a longer period of time, there has to be a way that we can allow them to see if they can do that higher intensity exercise and hit exercise is the perfect mm -hmm. example. And so that's what we were actually testing to see if these briefer bouts of high intensity exercise um, potentially had issues for the baby and um, fetal heart rate was fine throughout. Oh, so you didn't, you didn't see a slowing of fetal heart rate at all at the nope, during hit not at all. exercise. Yeah. And so there's got to be some sort of balance between, um, you know, we can't have these really broad spanning um, recommendations as soon as you have one study that says, you know, you can't do above 90% because you might have a slowing of a fetal heart rate that actually caused most guidelines around the world to say you cannot do it. But we have to find the balance because doing mm. a graded exercise test that's 25 to 30 minutes long is not the same as one minute of high intensity. The physiology is okay. 
different. So did they did they do like a max test up to VO2 max or something all the way up? Yeah, pretty much. And they saw what a slowing of of heart rate at the highest intensities. In a subset of these very uh, highly trained athletes, yes. Okay. And do we even know a slowing of, it, I mean, I guess there's been all sorts of other conditions other than exercise where they show what a, a slowing of heart rate is indicative of fetal stress. Is that how it works? Because mm. part of me thinks it would go the other way almost if there was, I guess it depends on what the what's going on. Yeah, so as part of the uh, 2019 Canadian guideline, we did 12 systematic reviews and meta-analyses, which were looking at uh, basically every health outcome that we would be really caring about um, when we talk about exercise and pregnancy and maternal and fetal health. One of those reviews was looking at fetal responses to exercise and pregnancy, and you're absolutely right. In general, when mom is exercising, the fetal heart rate will go up uh, a couple of beats, like about five or maybe in mm -hmm. some cases, 10 beats per minute. Um, but in some cases, if we do see that bradycardia, that slowing of the heart rate for mm -hmm. too long of a period of time, um, if that's happening for um, an extended period, that is very concerning. That would be an indication to deliver the baby. Um, but interestingly, with these um, even acute beds of exercise where they did maximal exercise, um, it recovered when the exercise stopped. And so we don't know mm. the health effects um, of that. And so certainly there's more work that needs to be done. Um, but because of those studies, we almost stopped all research in high intensity exercise for a period of almost 10 years. And so we're just right. getting back to the point where we can do those studies again to, you know, help athletes who we know that many of them just continue to do that high intensity exercise regardless. Um, um, they just don't know what the, you know, potential harms or benefits are because we don't have the data to support it. That's interesting. So the, the athletes are tending to do it anyway. Is that right? Yeah. They're tending to. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I, I was, I'm figuring you may have had some trouble getting your ethics approvals. <laughs> To um, do the HIT training, you know, based on the previous study, did you have much luck, uh, much trouble with that, or? No. So I've been at the University of Alberta for eleven years now, <clears throat> and we've done a number of exercise tests. Um, I think one of the important things that we do here is that we monitor the outcomes that we find are really important. And in this particular case, the key outcome that is going to drive the decision about whether or not athletes and um, recreational or elite can and should be exercising at these high levels is the response of the fetus. We don't mm -hmm. typically get very concerned that the mom's not going to be able to do it. We yeah. expect that if she's doing HIIT training, she's physically able to. Um, but where we become concerned is we don't know what's happening to the baby at that point in time. So when we're doing the studies, and we typically will recruit people who are already doing they're actually safer in my hands where we're monitoring exactly. the fetus mm -hmm. and we know exactly what's going on um, and i think that's the really key point that when we're doing these studies we cannot be running hit studies or heavy lifting studies or anything like that without actually monitoring the fetus Mm -hmm. um, we need to answer the question that is going to change the guidelines or at least help drive um, clinical decisions on that standpoint. Exactly. I could imagine if you were trying to um, recruit, because, you know, I've done studies and science having trouble getting ethics approval and I've been on the ethics committee. I can imagine if you were getting 
people that didn't exercise and you're saying, okay, we don't want to do hit or we want to do weight training. Yeah. It might be harder, but as you say, you make the point that these people are doing it anyway. Yeah. So let's monitor them, et cetera. So with the monitoring, I'm just wondering, obviously it's easy to monitor the, the mother's heart rate, et cetera. How, how do you go about monitoring the baby's heart rate? Yeah, so we use an ultrasound. So if you've ever been to an obstetrical appointment where you're looking at baby mm. for the first time, it's the exact same technology. Okay. Um, mm. Depending on the study, depending on the, the level of risk of the person that we're working with. Uh, so for example, we've done this with, you know, just like, hit exercise, but we've also done it with um, women who are carrying twin pregnancies. Uh, and so in those cases, we actually have um, a cardiologist who comes in and does those assessments. They look at the fetal heart before um, we even start the exercise, just to make sure baby's actually okay. Um, we also look at fetal heart rate. We look at um, umbilical blood flow. So the blood flow that's going from the placenta mm -hmm. to the baby. Um, we look at brain blood flow uh, if we're fast enough. Wow. Okay. Uh, yeah. As well. So we do as many clinical measures as we can, because those are the really important things that we need to actually know when mm. we're doing these particular studies. So you're just moving the ultrasound around or do you have more than one ultrasound or, you know, sorry, obviously with twins, it's different, but if you've got one baby and you're trying to look at the brain blood flow and the, and the heart, et cetera. Do you have more than one ultrasound or what do you do there? Uh, well, we do have multiple ultrasounds. Um, typically we only have one tech that is actually able to do it mm -hmm. um, at a time. And so they are in the same, one of the unique things that we do in our lab is that they will do an upright exercise and you measure the fetal responses in that exact same position. I know that other um, previous work, they will actually come off of the bed or off of the bike or the treadmill and they'll lie down on a bed, which is going to change the physiology, mm -hmm. uh, to a certain extent. Oh, so I was imagining you were doing cycling because you'd, everything would be jugg juggling around, jiggling around in there if you're doing running, but do you actually do running as well with these measures? Uh, no, we typically with the hit because, uh, it was so unique and we took mm. them up, you know, by the end of it, the goal was to get above that 90% of maximal heart rates on average we were getting them above 96 percent for safety mm. reasons because this was first ever mm. uh we did do the bike um in case they were you know having post-exercise hypotension or anything like that we could get them pretty quickly okay so it would be harder i i'm imagining it's harder for someone to measure the using ultrasound measure things while they're running anyway wouldn't it be yeah no you can't do it during <laughs> So that At least the not question. that I've figured it out. There's, uh, I know there's a portable device, but I haven't. Uh, heard okay. So I guess well, that gets to the question of um, of the different modes of exercise. So if you, so anyway, I'm really impressed. I think that sounds great. The studies you're doing, I didn't realize people were doing that. I didn't realize you were doing that. So it's great that you're doing these measurements and you're uh, finding. So so when you're looking. I'll get back to my point in a minute about running versus cycling. But are you finding so brain blood flow? heart rate are you looking at actually heart sort of you know can you look at i don't know how the heart's functioning etc during the exercise as well and, and umbilical blood is everything good everything's fine yeah totally fine that study yeah. isn't published yet but it's it's coming soon great and yeah. now uh, the hit study we have published it and mm -hmm. again um we're not seeing any adverse effects the mom and the baby are tolerating that high intensity exercise quite well now the mm -hmm caveat with that there's two okay. first these are all people who have typically 
you know, done hit before and certainly during their pregnancy as well. And then the second thing is that we screen everybody for contraindications. So contraindications are medical reasons why somebody um, should not engage in more moderate to vigorous physical activity because there has been um, some data or theoretical risk that it might um, adversely impact either the mother or the baby. And so all of these people have been um, pre-screened before they do the exercise. So it's not a broad recommendation that everybody should be doing yeah, HIIT. Okay. Um, these are you know, highly active um, people who have been med uh, not medically pre-screened, but they have been pre-screened for contraindications um, to make sure that they don't have any specific reason why they shouldn't be doing moderate to vigorous intensity exercise. Yep. Yep. Okay. And then I guess, I guess the question then is, uh, so I was touching on the mo modalities. So if you're doing cycling, can you assume that, that the results you're getting would be the same with running or do you have to try and do those studies one day? Because naturally there's a, a bit more going on there with the movement mm -hmm. of the baby and. Um, yeah. Um, I would expect that there would be a potential difference. I mean, we have seen data looking at just like um, rating of perceived exertion is different across pregnancy if you're doing a cycling exercise versus if you're doing a, um, you know, walking uh, treadmill protocol. Um, but looking at different modalities with the exception of really looking at aerobic based activities versus resistance training activities. Um, we haven't gotten to that level of detail yet. Uh, when we mm. talk about exercise and pregnancy, it is still a very oh, yeah. understudied like and novel mm. area. Mm -hmm. oh, it sounds like you're doing great stuff. I guess, I guess I'm just wondering if there'd be a difference or not. And I guess you don't know until you do the research. Now, one one question I've got the guy uh, Mark Preben Lindback. He's he's he, he's a fantastic follower of the podcast, and he always sends through about six questions or something. Now, one of them I hadn't thought of, which I think is a good one to bring up now, is um, does having a high maternal VO two max at baseline and or during pregnancy also benefit the fetus, or is it the regular exercise stimulus that mediates the benefits? So it made me think of that while you were saying that the people that you're testing are already, you know doing the training so they naturally have a higher VO to max initially than than maybe a recreational person. So I wonder if that might make a difference as well. That mm. um so anyway, do do we actually know that that if someone's fit already, I guess there's less of a stress because they can maintain their homeostasis more. Uh, the answer is uh, no. I'm not aware of any data that specifically looks um, at that, but there's a couple of things that we can kind of think about. So if we talk about athletes who are naturally going to have, well, not naturally, they've trained to have a higher VO2 over many years, regular exercises, same thing. Um, we know that they generally have better health outcomes than the general population. Uh, whether that's due to the higher VO2 itself or whether it's due to the chronic activity, it's really hard mm -hmm. to say. Um, but I did publish a study um, with Nathalie Dion um, in Montreal uh, a year or so ago where we were looking at VO2 and risk of developing preeclampsia. And basically, if you did have a lower VO2 either before or during pregnancy, that you did have an increased risk for developing preeclampsia. Mm -hmm. Hardly any data around that. Um, you know, it's very new. It's an area that needs to be looked at. Um, but 
but yeah, mm. I mean, the easy answer is we just, we don't know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting question I hadn't really thought about. And I was thinking more as you were discussing, I guess you could do, um, so you know how you were able to get this ethics approval for, to study these people because they were doing it already. Maybe right. if you had people that were doing like weight training or something mm. um, and they don't have a higher VO to max, you know, you could then look at them and see, you know. So I wonder if you have um, looked at, because I know you, we touched on, we had a bit of email back and forth. So you've, you've, you wanted to talk about sort of high intensity exercise, which we, which touched on, but also heavy lifting. So people, you know, tend to, well, even just, just with the non-pregnant population, you tend to think, oh, you don't want to put your blood pressure up too high and things. So have you looked at uh, heavy lifting as well? Uh, yes, actually we have. So one of the things that happens or was put into the the 2019 Canadian guidelines is that you should, in, or we recommend that you engage in both a combination of aerobic and resistance training. And I mean, that applies to the general population. Resistance training, strength-based training uh, really is highly beneficial, um, but in different ways than aerobic mm -hmm. activities. That being said, in pregnancy, there is such limited data that is out there at this particular point in time. A lot of it is really focused on sort of body weight um, exercises, maybe some bands, and at best you might get into light um, barbell or dumbbells. Mm -hmm. um, but I was working with um, somebody who just emailed me out of the blue and she was like, hey, uh, I was wondering about heavy lifting. And I'm like, mm. well, there's no data on it. And uh, at that point in time, the recommendation to avoid heavy lifting really comes from the occupational literature. So when we talk about occupational lifting, um, you're typically mm. going to be doing very poor form. You don't typically have big breasts. You might do it repetitively many, many times mm. over the course of the day. And so some of our reviews that we had done, systematic reviews that we had done, uh, demonstrated that if you lift more than 11 kilograms at a time um, during pregnancy, there's an increased risk for um, delivering early, having a miscarriage, and having preeclampsia or developing preeclampsia. But it's very different than lifting heavy weights in a gym where you're doing proper form, you're using your breath properly, um, and you have adequate recovery between. Uh, and so we did a cross-sectional survey because we were not able to get ethics to do a heavy lifting study oh, okay. in pregnancy yet. So mm -hmm. we had to start with a questionnaire. And so um, she's very connected, uh, Dr. Christina Previtt, who is now working with me as a postdoctoral fellow. She's very connected in um, the functional fitness world. And uh, she is one herself. Uh, and so we looked at individuals who had lifted uh, at least 80% of their um, preconception body weight. And some of them continued during pregnancy, some of them did not. Uh, and the ones that continued during pregnancy, uh, they actually had overall better health outcomes than those who did what the guidelines recommend, which is to uh, stop lifting heavy during their pregnancy. So because of that particular um, study, uh, we were actually able to go back to ethics and uh, it did take a bit of time, um, but we've uh, just completed a, a study on heavier, not quite mm -hmm. heavy lifting, but heavier lifting um, during pregnancy, where again, we look at fetal heart rates and umbilical blood flow before and after these uh, different modalities that we were looking at. So it's and starting to change. Are you able to say what you're finding yet or? 
Uh, I, I probably shouldn't until peer review, but um, given our discussions before, I don't think anything's going to be a real surprise. Oh, people do though. <laughs> okay. It's, it's actually been good. But what I talked to people on oh, here, they, okay. they usually say their latest stuff. But anyway, do they? Okay. we could maybe pretend it's like a conference or something. Is that all right? It's up to you. It's up to you. <laughs> pretend it's a conference. Yeah. It's up to you. Okay. Don't worry. Don't worry. But you gave us a hint anyway. The outcomes are great. We'll go with that. Great. No issues. Okay. Yeah. All right. No, I have I've actually been quite surprised, um, quite pleasantly. People will tend to say they're what they're finding, but you you've pretty much done that as well. But you you did give us a hint. So the findings are good. Okay, great. All right. And they were heavy, not not really heavy, but heavier than kind of heavyish weights. Yeah. yeah. So we we're looking at basically 70 to 80 percent of maximal efforts, um, mm -hmm. 10 RM, not one RM. Okay. And um, this is great. So again, so so just to clarify, so you're looking at, I don't know if you did that in that, that study, but generally the heart rate of the fetus, of the fetus, yep. Yeah, uh the the, so you're actually doing the heart function as well, is it, with the ultrasound? You can actually no, see what ejection fraction was. No, no. Yeah, so we didn't look at a heart function for that one because mm -hmm. you need a cardiologist to be able to do it, but mm -hmm. fetal heart rate and umbilical blood flow are... Umbilical blood flow, okay. Mm -hmm. And you're just wanting to see if umbilical blood flow doesn't change or... Yeah, or if it does change. Yeah, and you're finding it, it just... So it, with your studies, generally, they don't they don't change. But I guess uh, I'm getting at... Or they change for the better... Yeah, I was wondering what that is. So if it's higher, is that better? Is that what you're saying? No, higher is actually worse. So higher is a greater resistance to blood flow at the level of the placenta. Um, so higher resistance is not a good thing. It's, um, I don't know, this is probably really getting into the weeds, but basically um, if you have less resistance to blood flow, that's typically going to be a little bit better. Okay. So just remind me here. So we're talking about from the mum, uh, sorry, from the placenta to the baby, umbilical mm -hmm. blood flow. And if it's higher, that's bad because what it suggests higher pressure or something, or or you said yeah, less resistance. Or... A higher resistance to the blood flow, and then that can cause you know increases in, in it's not really increases in blood pressure, but it, you can think of it in the same way. Okay. All right. And I guess we've been thinking about blood flow, heart rate and things like that. Do we have any idea? And I guess this is from, I was thinking earlier, we should probably talk about the old sheep studies and, uh, and I don't know if there's been other, other studies, but I'm assuming a lot of this background on, oh, don't exercise too hard, et cetera, is from non-human studies. And uh, maybe you can just explain that. And then I also wanted to know, like, we've been talking just about heart rate and things like that. But what else have they looked at? I'm sure they've looked at oxygen concentrations and things like that. Not in, in, the, in the blood. No, sorry, in the sheep no. stuff. I'm, I'm wondering, okay, oh, sorry, I've kind of confused it. I'm wondering what people have shown previously in animal models, because then they can tend to look at more mechanisms and things like that. And, you know, up till now, we've just been talking about the, the fetus heart rate, for example. But what what about and the mums, you know, blood pressure or something like that? What's happening to the oxygen? Do we have to worry about other things, you know, so for example, the mother's lactates up, does that go up in the fetus, the, you know, all these myokines and, you know, all these other things, do we know much about what's going on there? And if, if there's other factors to think about or. Yeah. So, I mean, in humans, uh, we certainly don't know a lot. Um, in our HIT study, lactate was, uh, lactate was up quite high um, as you would expect. And mm -hmm. again, we saw no, issues with fetal heart rates. So if you want to try and make that link between the two, you know, lactate likely is not 
adversely impacting fetal heart rate and blood flow. When we talk about animal studies, I mean, those original sheep studies are from quite a long time ago. Um, they were, I believe, looking at 30% and 70% of maximal efforts. Um, and they did see that the higher intensity exercise was, um, my gosh, I don't remember anymore. I think that 70% there was an issue, which is why we sort of put a limit on it. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, when we're talking about sheep versus humans, um, they are slightly different. And so, mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah, I guess I wasn't very articulate the way I um, asked it. What I'm getting at is, is with the human studies, obviously you're not going to be able to get as mechanistic as you can do with some of these animal studies. And I'm just wondering if they had any um because i thought at one stage they were looking at because i used to be at monash university and they were look, they were looking at things like oxygen content and the and the blood of the mother and and then in the fetus and things like that so and then with the lactate i was thinking you know does the lactate cross into the baby and can that i'm not saying it would affect heart rate i'm just saying does you know are some of these things adrenaline um you know cortisol you know other things that are happening with exercise do, are they thought to maybe affect the baby in any way or is that not really a thing and it's really just it's the heart rate if the heart rate's fine everything's fine and, and maybe we don't know i don't know yeah i mean and it's entirely possible certainly you know you have to do the animal work to be able to figure that out but when we think about it sort of beyond that acute exercise at the end of the day we care about does the mother develop gestational diabetes preeclampsia gestational hypertension other complications yes. like that is the baby healthy, um, born an appropriate size? Are they born mm. early or not? And I think the thing I really missed touching on, which I absolutely should have um, at the beginning, is with the systematic reviews that we did from randomized control trials of um, exercise-only studies, uh, we found that there was a 40% reduction in the odds of developing gestational diabetes, preeclampsia, gestational hypertension, um, higher levels of uh, physical activity was associated with a decreased risk of depression during pregnancy of about 67%. Um, we saw there was a 39% reduction in the odds of having macrosomia, but no increased risk of having a small baby preterm delivery or a miscarriage. So while acutely there may be some issues in terms of you know what happens with lactate, what happens with um, increased catecholamines and what have you. And certainly we do need to better understand that when we talk about chronic exercise, the mother and baby's health outcomes are actually quite good and much right. better than if they don't exercise. And so I think it's really important that we, you know, almost move away um, from, you know, what are the health risks of engaging in exercise and focus more on what are the risks of not engaging in physical activity during pregnancy. There's a lot more we need to know, especially when we talk about the extremes of the, the, you know, where you have really complicated pregnancies. And then when we talk about sort of the high intensity and long duration activity, but when we're talking about sort of that moderate into a little bit vigorous activity is very helpful and beneficial for the mom and baby overall, as long as they don't have contraindications um, where they are not encouraged to do that. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I was just thinking while you're talking, I've maybe come across a bit negative. I should give the background. My assumption is always exercise is going to be good. 
<laughs> that's what every every person I've had on for every different area, it, it ends up exercise is good. So I tend to sort of start with that. And then I sort of, you know, be the devil's advocate and say, well, what about this? What about that? But mm. um, so that's that's fantastic that it's that it's bearing out and it's kind of like as what I, I'd, I'd sort of expect. But yeah, I didn't make it clear enough. So yeah, the baby, uh, the mother, I'm assuming, mm. and it sounds like you've just said that all the benefits that you would get if you're say not pregnant even of exercise, the mother's going to be getting, and 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 then the one you touched on, which is very important, is less likelihood of gestational diabetes as mm-hmm. well. Yeah, yep. so and preeclampsia. So preeclampsia is not one we can forget about because up until the release of the 2019 guidelines, there actually wasn't a broad recommendation in, t- in terms of how we can prevent it. So once you develop preeclampsia, we can extend the time to delivery a little bit with different medications. Um, but typically the only way it's actually cured is um, by delivery. And so the only preventative tool that we really have for um, preventing preeclampsia in high-risk populations only is aspirin. Um, but with this guideline where we found that there was a 40% risk in 40%. or reduced risk of uh, odds of developing preeclampsia, um, that became a uh, frontline recommendation in terms of prevention Um, and it's been taken up by organizations around the world Um, there was a I was very happy to see this review in New England Journal of Medicine by uh, Laura McGee um, where they they strongly recommended engaging in physical activity during pregnancy the the conversation is finally changing um, which is really good Mm -hmm. Um, but certainly we need to do a lot more work to better understand all of it from a mechanistic standpoint, right up to what are the differences in the extremes of activities. Um, but in general, it's recommended. You do have to take into account that when you're pregnant, there are definitely days where you feel terrible. You don't mm. feel like getting up. You don't want to do whatever, or you're just sick. And on those days, it's totally fine to just take it easy. You have to listen to you know your body and listen your, your body. brain and take care of your well-being, get back to it when you can. Um, But the other thing that is often missing uh, in the uh, knowledge translation that we do of these guidelines is that activity levels even well below the guidelines do derive significant benefits. So when we talk again about preeclampsia, we did dose-response relationships um, to see if increasing the overall volume of activity was associated with a linear reduction in the odds of developing preeclampsia. And we found that there was, but that to see a 25% reduction in the odds of developing preeclampsia, you needed to go for a walk nine minutes a day, every day of the week or six days of the week. But only nine minutes a day. That's not very Mm -hmm. long. Yeah. Right. So we're not even talking about 10,000 steps and things like that. No. And and nine minutes, was that sort of, you know, vigorous, like power walk or just a walk? Moderate intensity. Really? Wow, it's great. It's just going out for a walk. So any when we talk about pregnancy, especially, um, we we really try to advocate for every minute counts. You don't even have to do it in 10 minute bouts if you can't, just incorporating Mm. ways to increase your activity levels, especially if you were inactive before you were pregnant. Um, You know, for a long time, we heard you shouldn't do anything during Mm. pregnancy that you hadn't done before. Um, But in this case, um, you know, with the systematic reviews, again, we looked at those who were inactive before pregnancy versus those who were active before pregnancy. And we actually found that people who started 
and engaging mm -hmm. in physical activity during pregnancy that hadn't done it before, they had better health outcomes and better risk reduction than those who were active before. Okay, that's great. Okay, so yeah, at the start, we're sort of focusing on the, on the uh, offspring, you know, mm -hmm. the, the fetus and the offspring, which we'll, we'll get back to. But yeah, it's important to let's talk some more about the mothers then. So did you want to just explain a little bit what preeclampsia is, what the risk factors are and things, and then, because that's, that's a big one. I, I, that was not on my radar. So if you're reducing that by 40%, mm -hmm. uh, and do you know how the exercise is reducing that just by dropping the blood pressure? So why don't you talk? talk? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so so there's a, a series of different conditions called hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. Uh, I focus on two of them. So one is gestational hypertension, um, which is a high blood pressure without any other sort of um, associated effects to go with it. Um, and then the second one is preeclampsia. So preeclampsia, again, is high blood pressure developing after 20 weeks, the midpoint of pregnancy. Um, but there are associated end organ issues. So the most traditional one is that you get protein in the urine, ketones in the urine. Um, you can also get headaches, blurriness. Um, there can be evidence of issues with the kidney or liver um, as well. Uh, so it's a really key condition um, that your your healthcare provider is going to be watching for, for sure. Um, in terms of why exercise is beneficial, uh, we don't know. Um, certainly, there's going to be the normal exercise-associated reductions in blood pressure. How that's different um, in pregnancy, we, we don't know yet. My PhD student... Um, a couple of years ago, ran a randomized control trial where we were looking at um, the cardiovascular changes. So we were looking at how the endothelial um, function was happening or changing with exercise. Uh, we also did microneurography to be able to look at sympathetic muscle sympathetic nerve activity. Um, and in general, we saw that there was a slight reduction in sympathetic nerve activity, um, the exercising group versus those who are not. Um, but surprisingly, we didn't really see any differences in endothelial function, which is what we would have expected. So we need to do a lot more um, work in that particular area. Uh, you asked about risk factors. Um, lots of risk factors for it. Certainly, uh, if you have a family history of high blood pressure or preeclampsia, um, you know, having overweight or obesity, um, having personal history of hypertension. Um, but one of the ones that makes it so difficult um, is that the, being a first time mom. So being pregnant for the first time is actually a risk factor and one of the key mm. ones. Okay. And you said nine minutes could reduce your risk of preeclampsia. And you also said there's a volume, the greater the volume. So so when you say the 40% reduction, was that like a greater volume, I guess, or... Like what mm. can we give a bit of an idea? So if people do nine percent and nine nine percent, nine minutes, they might reduce it by whatever mm -hmm. percent. Do we yeah? Yeah. So there's 60 minutes per week. Uh the nine minutes a day is to see a 25% reduction. So that was mm. from our systematic review and meta-analysis. We did that dose response curve. Um, whereas the 40% number uh would certainly be from a higher um volume of activity. Uh, the 40% was from our systematic reviews, um, where basically the exercise group had a 40% lower risk of developing preeclampsia than those who were not in the exercise group. Um, but in general, they had a much higher um, 
volume of activity per week that they were doing to be able to get that 40% reduction. Okay. And it's interesting you're saying that the, I guess like VO to max, the lower your VO to max is initially, the more you can increase it with exercise. You're saying the same sort of thing, the, the lower that people were exercising, I guess, the more benefit they got from the exercise. Is that right? Uh, the less active they were. Uh, sorry, the less active they were, the more sort of benefits they got by being active, which I guess makes sense. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And when when you look at has anyone done epidemiological studies to see the outcomes in people that have exercised versus versus people that haven't? I think you said they have, right? Um, oh, there is lots of really great large epi studies that have looked at it. Mm-hmm. All right, and and. If they looked at athletes, uh, sorry, is that looking at the mother or the offspring's offspring's health or both? Both. Both, okay. And have they looked at, have they separated that out and looked at people that are doing the vigorous, you know, we talked about the athletes doing the the high-intensity exercise and the high volumes and things. Have people had a big enough N or, or looked at athletes, the outcomes for them and the babies? Mm -hmm. So not when we talk about really large epidemiological studies. Um, So a couple of years ago, my master's students, uh, they actually did, again, a systematic review and Mm meta-analysis, looking at elite athletes who were athletes right before pregnancy and then uh, during pregnancy and compared it to basically whatever comparator group that the researchers had had. Most were um, recreationally active uh, individuals, and in some cases, they were um, not active individuals as the control group. And you know, there's not tons of studies out there um, yet. It's building for sure when we talk about athletes. But overall, we found that the um, pregnancy, labor, and delivery outcomes of the elite athletes uh, were very similar to the other individuals. They did not have an increased risk, which I think was uh, the key question that we had. Yeah, the interesting thing is, um, if anything, we've been talking about whether there's a detrimental effect on the fetus, but we know, and even I've done some studies, that um, that exercising the mum can actually have beneficial effects on the offspring, so not just like preventing, you know, not just having no negative effect. So I, I did a study, for example, where we had um, fathers, this is, this is rodents, rats, fathers on a high-fat diet, and then the offspring had increased risk of diabetes, so, so uh, not as good glucose tolerance, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And we showed, so this is the father on the high-fat diet, not the mother. And they conceive, and then the father's out of the picture. And then the, if the mother exercises during the pregnancy, the offspring have better outcomes. So, um, and I know Laurie Goodyear's done a whole bunch of stuff from, from uh, Delson Diabetes in, in Harvard, a whole bunch of stuff with, you know, fathers exercising, mothers exercising, high-fat diets, low-fat diets. Um, mm-hmm. you know, before the pregnancy, during the pregnancy or both, and the outcomes are beneficial. So I guess I guess we've been tending to sort of focus, as I said, on is there a negative effect? But do you find, is there evidence in humans, for example, that if you exercise, if the mother exercises during pregnancy, the offspring are actually better and have mm-hmm. less diabetes, less blood pressure problems, et cetera, later in life? Yeah, so the later in life question um, becomes quite muddied. There are not that many studies that look at the longer term follow up of the offspring. Uh, that's where we really rely on um, more animal models. Um, you know, the work that you were doing, the work that Dr. Goodyear have done. Um, that's where we really start to understand some of the mechanisms. Um, when we do our human studies, um, 
you know, you can follow up to a certain length of time, you're going to have dropout for sure. Um, as we go along, there are some studies, though, um, where they have looked at the postpartum follow up of people who had exercised during pregnancy versus those who did not. And there's some encouraging data. Again, it's pretty novel um, and pretty new. Uh, there was a study out of Montreal that was showing um, higher brain activity uh, in the babies uh, that uh, were from exercising moms. And uh, there's other studies uh, out of the States um, that has looked at the uh, fetal heart, or sorry, not fetal heart, the newborn heart uh, a couple of months after delivery and found that it's uh, more efficient, uh, lower heart rate variability. Mm -hmm. um, and then there was a recent study uh, that came out where they were following up seven years after delivery. And I believe that they showed that there might be some improvements in overall development as well. Um, that being said, there's just as many studies that show that there's no difference in terms of um, weight uh, a couple years out um, in development as well. So it's generally because we have very limited resources to be able to follow up longer term. We do yeah, exactly. have fairly high mm -hmm. um, dropout. And then you have these external influences. When we have animal studies, we can control what's happening in the postpartum period and later in life pretty well so that we can understand what that link is. But life gets in the way when we're talking about humans. And so you have those environmental uh, influences mm. that are going to play a role that we are, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, we've talked about the exercise, but I guess we haven't really thought about um, when the exercise takes place. So naturally, as you get more and more into the pregnancy and heavier and heavier, and it gets more and more uncomfortable, et cetera. Um, I'm wondering what, what, what you've looked at or what others have looked at in terms of, do you need to reduce your intensity, your duration? I guess we haven't talked that much about duration other than with preeclampsia. Um and you just listen to your body. You know, you mentioned earlier, if you feel crap, then don't exercise. Do you, or do you sort of say, no, no, I, sh I should keep exercising for the for my own sake, the baby's sake. Do we do we know much about that? Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, one of the, again, going back to the guidelines, because it was really a watershed moment um, for the field where we answered a lot of key questions, um, you know, for a long time, the recommendations and the guidelines where you shouldn't start to or begin new activities until the second trimester. So once the okay. um, first trimester is over, you're feeling better, uh, alive again, um, and the risk of having a miscarriage is actually reduced. Um, but it turns out that when we did, again, one of the systematic reviews we looked at was looking at whether or not exercise increases the risk of having a miscarriage. Uh, we found no relationship. Mm. So for those people who do want to continue to exercise in that first trimester, um, there's no reason not to, unless you're really feeling like crap or you develop a contraindication. Um, we do know that generally as pregnancy progresses, um, overall volume of activity will decrease. Part of that is, you know, the development in the third trimester of discomfort, you are likely to be a bit more fatigued. Um, and complications can arise uh, for sure. But again, there's no hard and fast rules that you should be reducing your activity in the third trimester. If you feel like that's the right thing for you, that's what you should do. Um, mm. But there's also lots of athletes um, and recreational um, athletes and elite level that will continue basically until the day before they deliver. And so mm. I think it's really important to 
support women and facilitate the continuation of activity if that is what they want to do. Yeah, it's interesting. I was thinking um, uh, we did some rodent studies and we had the running wheel and they definitely, as they were getting closer and closer to having uh, delivering, they they definitely did less. <laughs> they just, well, they just felt I mean, like crap. The thing to think about is naturally, you know, as you gain weight, the intensity of what you're doing is going to be higher anyway. So if you're running mm. early in pregnancy and then you gain, you know, 25, 35 pounds, mm. By the time you get to the end of pregnancy, the intensity is potentially still the same, but you're doing a brisk mm. walk instead. That's a good point. I didn't think of that, to yeah. be honest. Yeah, because they were doing, on the running wheel, they were just doing less revolutions mm. per day. But yeah, they're carrying more weight. We didn't think through that, to be honest. Um, okay, just going to the questions here. Uh, okay, so you're basically saying, I think, and you sort of said it earlier, there's, there's no real hard and fast rule um, as you're getting later in the pregnancy, if you're feeling uncomfortable, whatever, just listen to your body, I guess. Um, yeah. But uh, as far as you I know, should... there's neg negative. Sorry, as far as you know, there's no negative um, of pushing through it. Um, okay. So the one thing that I should highlight is again these ideas of contraindication. So we just touched on them really briefly, mm -hmm. um, but I think we should probably talk about it in a bit more detail since this is sure. you know trying to get rid of misinformation. Uh, so contraindications are medical conditions where physical activity uh, in the moderate to vigorous zone, what we would typically call exercise, uh, may not be recommended. There's two different types. The first is an absolute uh, contraindication, and the second is a relative one. So with absolute contraindications, um, these are things like severe preeclampsia, um, intrauterine growth restriction, so um, the baby is not growing to its uh, potential. Engaging in moderate to vigorous intensity exercise uh, is not advised because there is some either empirical evidence or theoretical concern um, where there might be harm to either the mother or the baby. So those are absolute contraindications. The key thing is, is that we know that bed rest is not beneficial um, for anybody, also not in pregnancy. Um, and so we still encourage activities of daily living, still mobilizing, you know, get dressed go into, you know, if you want to make breakfast, that sort of thing. Um, but staying in bed is not beneficial, especially for mental health. And it's uh, not been demonstrated to be beneficial for um, fetal and pregnancy outcomes either. The second one is the relative contraindications. Uh, relative contraindications requires a discussion with your healthcare provider um, about whether or not uh, the you know, basically the pros and cons of exercise or whether or not modifications need to be made um, to either the intensity, duration, type of activity, what have you. But in the vast majority of cases, um, a continuation of uh, exercise is recommended. Often there will be modifications that have to be made either then or a little bit later. Um, but continuing activity, if you're feeling okay, uh, is generally mm. recommended. And so screening okay, so, those is really important. So I guess not not pushing. So if you are healthy, there's no contraindications, et cetera. You're not necessarily saying um, you're wanting people to continue to exercise. They feel comfortable, but if they're not feeling like it, they should. The other thing is, should people be seeing their doctor? Because I, I know often we say, oh, see your doctor before, but your their doctor may not know these things, the doctor might say, oh, no, no, don't exercise. So, you know, it's a bit of a tricky one. Mm -hmm. 
so it's a great question. You just led me right into the Get Active questionnaire for pregnancy. So ooh, okay. uh, ooh. Mm -hmm. <laughs> going awesome. along with the um, uh, 2019 guideline, the previous iterations of the guidelines was exactly that, that you should go speak to your healthcare provider. Um, but the feedback that we were getting is, you know, people were stopping exercise when they became pregnant. They would often not see their healthcare provider until they were sort of, you know, 14 weeks, maybe a little bit later. And they had done no exercise for, um, you know, three months. And so that's not necessarily beneficial for somebody who was highly active before um, to do that. And so in consultation with our healthcare provider partners, uh, we developed what's called the Get Active Questionnaire for Pregnancy. So it's a, um, a screening tool which follows ACSM uh, recommendations uh, where basically pregnant individuals are going to fill this document out. They answer a series of questions to identify whether or not they should be speaking to their healthcare provider um, about physical activity and pregnancy. And the goal is to basically remove this major barrier to exercise um, during pregnancy so that they can actually derive the health benefits, again, if they're, they're feeling up to it. Um, and this is sort of moving along that same line of thought that we need to stop talking about what are the risks of mm. physical activity. Again, we still need Benefits. to know more about it, but mm. within the scope of the guidelines, which is that 150 minutes of moderate intensity physical activity spread over three or more days of the week, we need to move away from what is the risk of that? Because we know that the guidelines are healthy and safe for the vast majority of people. Um, to what are the harms of not being exactly. active during pregnancy? Mm. I have to admit, I didn't actually realize that people were, and I knew obviously that there's a greater risk of miscarriage, et cetera, in the first mm -hmm. uh, trimester, but I, I didn't realize people were sort of therefore not exercising because uh, I, you know, I just assumed that that was nothing to do with exercise, you know, that risk. Um, but yeah, so people were actually purposely not exercising f during that first trimester because they know it's a risk for they know there's an increased risk of miscarriage but they think somehow the exercise will make it worse mm -hmm. and so there was a very large epi study that was done um ooh, it was quite a while now early 2000s maybe um where they surveyed a lot of people uh the numbers are completely escaping me right now <laughs> Um, but they asked them if, either before or after miscarried, after they had miscarried, um, about their different um, lifestyle mm -hmm. factors, smoking, mm -hmm. alcohol. But also yeah. they were asking about their physical activity levels. And one of the uh, things that came out of it was that high intensity, high volumes of activity in the first trimester was associated with an increased risk of having a miscarriage. That spread worldwide. Um, mm -hmm. And it's um, certainly, you know, if you've had, well, for those of you who have been pregnant, um, miscarriage is a really terrifying thing that happens and something that you want to avoid at all costs. Um, mm -hmm. But we also know that one in four um, women will experience a miscarriage in their lifetime. And often it's due to completely unrelated events that you simply can't control. Um, but if it is something that you can have within your control, um, then you're going to want to do something about it very likely. Mm -hmm. But the problem was, is that, and the authors actually went back and they redid the study where they limited it to asking about physical activity before the woman had miscarried. And they found that there was no more relationship uh. at that point in time. Um, but that message hasn't 
come through the same. Um, and that's why we made a very strong statement when, with the title of the guideline, which is that it's uh, the Canadian guideline for physical activity throughout pregnancy, right from conception, right to delivery. And again, you know, it's not designed to, um, you know, create a lot of pressure that you must exercise during pregnancy. We know it's beneficial. We know it's very helpful. Um, but moms experience a lot of guilt. Um, mm. At least I certainly did mm. <laughs> as a mom. Okay. And so focusing on both your physical, but also your um, psychological and mental health is mm -hmm. a really important balance. And so we're trying to remove the barriers to exercise during pregnancy. We know it's beneficial, but if it's not right for you at that point in time, then it's not something mm -hmm. um, that you can really incorporate, if that makes sense. Yep, it does make sense. Just just clarify again. So you said the study found there was an increased risk of miscarriage in the first trimester if you exercise, and then they didn't. I got slightly confused there. What right. Was the so it's um so some people had been interviewed about their activity levels before they miscarried some people were interviewed after they miscarried and so mm -hmm. there was this concern that there might be recall bias um because there's been a long time where um you know there's this thought that if you exercise too much that you're going to have a small baby you're going to miscarry you're going to have a preterm mm -hmm. delivery Okay, and they found in the end they found that when mm -hmm. they reanalyzed that's the bit I missed. Sorry, they when they reanalyzed it, they found. Sorry. You may want me to start right at the beginning. <laughs> so basically, when they reanalyzed the data and they only included people who were interviewed about their activity levels before they miscarried, there was not a relationship anymore. Okay, so the bottom line is it, it looks like there's no relationship. It's not improved. It's not worse. It's basically no relationship if you exercise or not in the first trimester on on miscarriages. Okay, great. Well, now, I just want to get back to a. Uh, I just want to ask a, a very applied question that uh, Jacob sent through. I think we know the answer from this one already, but I'll just uh, reinforce it. How to adapt slash modify training for women who are already in an exercise routine prior to pregnancy. So do they need to adapt, modify? Second one, how to program for those who may not have been exercising but wish to begin during pregnancy. So we, again, we've kind of covered this, but it'd be nice just to, mm -hmm. to drive it home, I guess. Yeah, so my my view and lots of people have different views for sure. Um, I really advocate for an individualized symptom-based approach. So some people are going to feel very pregnant very early on in pregnancy. Um, you know, you get obviously one of the key features of pregnancy is that you have a growing belly. Um, and so you will have to adapt around the belly at some point um, during pregnancy. Um, you know, if you're an athlete who's lifting heavy and you're barbell athlete, um, at some point, you're going to have to move the bar around the belly. It's going to change your technique. Um, I used mm. to be doing Olympic lifting and my technique was terrible. And, oh. um, you know, it's very easy to untrain it. And so we suggest making adaptations, like just going to um, dumbbells doesn't help our really, really strong athletes. You can't find a dumbbell high enough or big enough. Mm. Um, there can be other things, um, you know, just cycling might become very uncomfortable um, because by the end of pregnancy, just the hormonal changes that are happening, that your, your pelvis is actually starting mm. to loosen to allow for delivery. And it can be uncomfortable on the bike for some people, not for others. Um, and so well, is that relaxing? Is that relaxing that does that? Oh, there's debate on that. So Sinead Dufour uh, is probably um, the world leader in, in that particular area. 
Um, so I'm doing some work with her through through FIFA. And uh, I've been schooled on relaxant. She knows it all. And <laughs> okay. it's very unlikely mm -hmm. that um, relaxant is the answer to everything. Oh, it's interesting because my my wife um, with our, crap, I should remember this, our firstborn, I think, um, you know, she was running, she was a runner before pregnancy. She ran the whole way through and, and, the, and then she ended up like in a wheelchair at the end because her pelvis was just so, you know, for the last few weeks, she just was so unstable and things and it was all relaxing, relaxing, relaxing. But you're saying it's, it's controversial. Yeah, it's uh, very controversial. And I'm, you know, again, I'm learning uh, a lot more about it. Relaxin is going to play some role in terms of, you know, allowing the, um, allowing the skeleton just relax a little bit, the pelvis to, to mm -hmm. allow for the delivery of the baby, but it doesn't do everything we think it does. Okay. Now I just want to get back to some things you said earlier. So, um, cause I did some studies as well on rats that were born small and then we exercise the offspring and things like that. Now you mentioned earlier that there's no, cause naturally you don't want to actually want a baby born small. You don't really want a baby born heavy either. Did you say there's no real change in the, uh, the baby's birth weight with exercise? Is that what you said earlier? Mm -hmm. So it's really, Interesting. The way I conceptualize it is that we're seeing a bit of a normalization in the birth weight. So with the systematic reviews, we didn't see an increased risk of having a small baby, but we saw a decreased risk of having a large baby or a macrosomic Perfect. baby. Um, and the reduction was about 39%. So it's significant. Yeah. Um, and so how that actually is working. The physiology is, I, I think, really quite fascinating. And I don't think we have a good answer on it yet. Um, you know, when you're exercising, you're going to have an increase in blood flow delivery to the placenta, which is then going to go to the baby. Perhaps you're getting, you know, better oxygen, nutrients, what have you going to the baby um, that if you were less active might not happen on sort of like that small end. On the larger end, the mechanisms might be a little bit different in terms of thinking more about, um, you know, improvements in blood glucose, blood sugar um, in the mom is if there's excess, it's going to go to the baby and it's going to be laid down typically as fat um, in the baby. And so if you're exercising, um, the baby will not see those blood sugars and increase um, their body weight as a result. If that makes sense, but yep, yep, it does. the short answer is we don't know. That's where we really need the animal work to come in. Yeah. Now thinking about it, we touched on gestational diabetes earlier. Maybe if you can just uh, explain what that is um, a little bit. And, and we've had a lot of people on the podcast previously, and it's you know, an area of my background of about how exercise improves insulin sensitivity. And it's interesting because exercise is naturally going to make the mother more insulin sensitive, but but a normal response I was thinking was with pregnancy is the mother becomes a little bit insulin resistant, so that the well, my fundamental my basic understanding was so that the baby sort of gets the glucose first rather than the mother taking it. Maybe can you just explain all, all of that a little bit? Um, yeah, I was kind of convoluted, but hopefully you followed what I was getting at. I think so. So gestational diabetes is. The presence of high blood glucose, blood sugars um, that arises for the first time or is first diagnosed during pregnancy. There are very specific thresholds um, that you need to cross. Um, you're absolutely right. During pregnancy, um, pretty much everybody becomes insulin resistant to a certain extent. Um, 
if you become too insulin resistant, um, then you can have too much blood glucose in the system. The excess blood glucose, you're right, will go to the baby. The interesting thing about the baby is that glucose will cross placenta, insulin does not. And so the baby is going to okay. see that glucose and then the um, immature pancreas is going to produce its own insulin and lay down that excess glucose that the baby is seeing um, as body fat. When okay. we have exercise, basically what's happening is it's, I, well, the way I conceptualize it is that you're basically normalizing those blood glucose values through non-insulin mediated um, uh, sequestration mm -hmm. of the um, glucose into the muscle. So the baby doesn't see those excessively high blood glucose values. Okay. Okay. And does it matter then? Okay. So just clarify that a bit. So for gestational diabetes, it's a problem. Uh, because the mother's glucose is becoming too high. Yeah, she's right. getting diabetes. And then that's flushing through the baby. So it might end up with a higher um, birth weight in the baby because it's getting all this glucose, yeah? Um, yes. And then, as you said, the the mother tends to become insulin resistant and that's a normal thing that so the baby gets the glucose. Exactly. Now, because the mother's exercising, she's going to be improving her insulin sensitivity. And um, does that actually you know, is that a problem in a way, you know what I mean? Because it's normal to get insulin resistant. But if you don't get insulin resistant because you're exercising, does that really matter? It's probably just, it probably doesn't really matter. It's, it's overcome by all the benefits. Mm. So I think where we would become concerned is if we saw hypoglycemia, low blood glucose um, after the exercise. Uh, unless somebody is on insulin, we actually don't see it very often. Um, if they're on insulin, then it's definitely a risk. And so there's different things that we need to do in advance. We, In my lab, if we have somebody who has gestational diabetes on insulin before they exercise, we'll measure their blood glucose, make sure it's above a certain threshold. Um, you know, we typically we'll instruct them to make sure you eat at a certain time before mm -hmm. um, the exercise. And we always test it after um, to avoid hypoglycemia. But we don't typically see that in somebody who does not have gestational diabetes who is exercising or somebody who has gestational diabetes and is not on insulin. Yep. Yep. Now you said you get a reduction in the gestational diabetes levels. So we talked earlier about preeclampsia, you know, getting up to 40%. What sort of reductions are you getting with uh, mothers that exercise during pregnancy? Exactly the same. It's 40%. Oh, really? Like, oh. yeah, I think, so I usually just say it's a 40% reduction in gestational diabetes, preeclampsia mm. and gestational hypertension. Okay. My memory really works. I think it's 39% for gestational diabetes, 41% for <laughs> preeclampsia, yeah, yeah. but my brain doesn't work that well. That's very close. I think we'll round that off. Um, so that's great then. So that's that's really important because, again, I'm not an expert in this area, but my understanding is if you get gestational diabetes during your pregnancy, you're at greater risk for developing type 2 diabetes later in life. So you actually, by reducing that, you're not just reducing the gestational, I'm assuming you're reducing the risk of type two later in life as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, those are three really important um, pregnancy outcomes that we look at because they are so intricately linked to risk of future diabetes and cardiovascular disease. So mm. um, having preeclampsia and the more severe the preeclampsia, the more likely you are to develop um, you know, cardiovascular disease at an earlier age. And so if we can prevent it during pregnancy, the thought is that we might be able to 
either prevent the development of type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease, or at least delay their onset until later in life. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the theory. It hasn't been tested. Um, and so we we do need to do those studies. Uh, certainly, animal work is going to play a really important role just because of the timeline. Uh, epidemiological evidence is suggesting that might be the case. Um, but it, that's a long haul question for sure. Okay. And now another one, um, I think you may have talked about this one already, a systematic review of meta-analysis 2018 that you were first author on, prenatal exercise for the prevention of gestational diabetes and hypertensive disorders. So I guess I'm wondering about, um, I guess it's ideal if you've been exercising before pregnant and then during pregnant pregnancy, but versus before only and during, do we know that? I know Laurie Goodyear, again, I touched on earlier, did before, during, and both, and both was better. Do you know that sort of breakdown in humans for these uh, diabetes and hypertension? Um, so there was a, ooh, a little while ago now, um, which there, I can't remember. I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the author group, which is very terrible. I apologize. Right. Um, but they basically showed with both preeclampsia and gestational diabetes that higher levels of activity um, before pregnancy and then in early pregnancy actually did have a better benefit. The one sort of caveat with that one um, is that they were all based on or primarily based on observational data. So the epidemiological data, um, which is not going to be quite the same quality of evidence that you would get with an interventional study. The problem is, again, you know, that's why, you know, Dr. Goodyear's work is so mm-hmm. critical. Um, when we talk about working with humans, not everybody's going to get pregnant the first month, first six months, first year. And so when we're doing exercise interventions before conception, it could actually be a very long time um, before you get a pregnancy outcome and see if it's able to prevent um, gestational diabetes or preeclampsia more than if they started during pregnancy. That's, oh, that makes sense. Okay. Again, it's harder to do these studies in humans. <laughs> and that's yeah. why... Um, you know, sometimes people say, oh, why do you do animal research first? For Well, it's a good example. You know, if you're doing, you know, born small and then they develop diabetes, you know, in their 50s, it's a bit hard to do it. So when you do an animal, a, a rodent study like a rat, but they only live two years, you can actually get a lot more information. Now, Mark Preburn Lindbeck has another good question here. You're saying if, and it, it fits with your talking about insulin, I want to touch on uh, during gestational diabetes. So if someone's got gestational diabetes and they've got perfect glucose control, which they've actually managed to achieve by the insulin therapy. Yeah. What other benefits will the pregnancy and fetus, uh, the woman and the fetus get from exercise and what mediates this? I wonder if that's known. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Great question. Hard question uh, yeah. to, to draw in human evidence, but um, you know, again, we know that exercise is quite beneficial for the general population, certainly for pregnancy. Um, we don't have a lot of data to support this necessarily, but we know that people have gestational diabetes, that they are at increased risk for developing preeclampsia. And so, you know, even if you have perfect gestational or GDM control, you can still focus on reducing the risk of developing preeclampsia. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because there's going to be cardiovascular benefits to exercise. Yep, yep. The mm-hmm. other piece we haven't really talked about very much, um, but is essential during pregnancy and postpartum is the mental health 
side of things. Mm, yeah. You know that pregnancy is a period um, of greater vulnerability. Um, you know, we really have to think about a mom's mental health, which is why I'm a big advocate for, um, you know, trying to find out ways that we can help support athletes to continue their training during pregnancy. It might look different, um, but we can't be telling people to completely stop. That's their identity. Um, yes. Same thing. We don't want to be telling everybody that you must exercise during pregnancy if it's actually mm -hmm. going to adversely impact your mental health. Um physical activity during pregnancy. Um, and there were very few studies when we published um, the, the guidelines, but we found a 67% reduction in the odds mm. of uh, developing over depression during pregnancy. Um, and so those are really important outcomes to be thinking about as well. Yeah, that's huge. I did pick up on that early and I did want to get back to it because I think that's really uh, obviously very important. Now, what I was thinking about is I heard somewhere along the line as well that this so-called postnatal depression is is not is a bit of a misnomer as well because apparently a third of depression develops in the first trimester. If a, a, a sorry, a third develops early in pregnancy, a third develops late in pregnancy, and a third develops post post pregnancy. You know, after the baby's born, so it's not just postnatal. But anyway, I'm wondering if if they've looked at that. If if the depression reduction is, you know, is it more the, the exercise reducing it? during the pregnancy, after the pregnancy? Do we know that sort of both, hopefully both? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the data that I just quoted with that systematic review, that was specific to pregnancy and depression. Um, there's a pretty big event that happens in the middle between pregnancy and postpartum, labor and mm -hmm. delivery. Um, mm -hmm. You know, some people have very smooth, easy um, deliveries. Some people have very traumatic um, issues um, that will persist that increase the risk of having depression postpartum. So um, we were a bit surprised that while physical activity and exercise in pregnancy reduced the risk of depression, it had no impact in the postpartum period. More data has okay. been published since then. So there might be some benefit, but I think childbirth is so significant. We can't sort of discount that. That being said, um, I'm also leading the um, upcoming 2024 Canadian guidelines for the postpartum period. And so we have done um, systematic review and meta-analysis where we found that engaging in physical activity postpartum does reduce the risk of depression and depressive symptoms as well. The other piece, we talk a lot about depression, but I would say an even larger proportion of the population experiences some form of anxiety during pregnancy and postpartum. And that is like, if there is a call to action in that particular area, we don't have enough evidence yet. Um, it's like the forgotten child of mental health in pregnancy and postpartum, but so many people are suffering, suffering in silence. And um, so we need to understand that better. Yeah. And, and they're obviously very close, sort of closely linked because I know nowadays, you know, they used to be, if people were highly anxious, they used to give them Valium, but now they're saying there's a quite addictive and things. So Quite often, you know, for SSRIs, for example, for, for depression, have an anti-anxiety effect as well. So they're naturally very, very linked. Just sure. thinking here, I had something about uh, you had a first author paper, filling the evidence void, ex exploration of coach and healthcare provider experiences working with pregnant postpartum elite athletes, a qualitative study. What was that about? And what were you thinking about there? Yeah, so I mean, that's a quick turn into elite athletes. Um, bringing in my 
um, former background as a as a synchro swimmer. Um, you know, back in when I was doing grad school, we didn't hear about high level athletes continuing during pregnancy and postpartum. And really, you know, even when I started my academic position in 2013 here, we didn't talk about it. We didn't hear about it. And everything changed in 2019 when Alison Felix published this opinion piece in the New York Times talking about her struggle to um, keep her sponsorship, to be able to um, have maternity benefits. Um, mm -hmm. You know, she was the most decorated high profile athlete in the world and she struggled. And so, um, you know, after reading this article, I, I went to visit a, a friend of mine in the faculty who does qualitative work. And so um, we started talking about it and I was like, you know, I don't know how to address this as a um, exercise physiologist, as a quantitative researcher. Mm. Can we do something on a qualitative standpoint? And so since that time, we have started to do and published about four or five now papers looking at the experiences of elite pregnant and postpartum athletes, um, what they were experiencing thinking about before they decide made the decision to become a, a parent um, what their experiences were during pregnancy and then their return to sport experiences postpartum the study that you're talking about was a little bit different we were looking at the experiences of coaches and healthcare providers in working with and training um these athletes um you know a lot of this work is going towards uh, working uh, certainly a lot more on the physiological standpoint. Um, that's, you know, obviously my, my home, mm -hmm. um, what I understand, and we're, we're very actively working towards that. But the other piece is more of a, a policy standpoint. Uh, we need to get the supports in place for athletes to be able to have um, children start a family and be able to return afterwards. Um, and so, what are they, the, you know, some of the key pieces that came from that is, you know, coaches have about as much information about training elite athletes as I do as a researcher. Um, there's not a lot of information. There's not a lot of really solid um, evidence-based recommendations. And so they were really calling for the fact that they need these recommendations to be able to support them. Um, they wanted to have clear policies in terms of the policy, parental leave policies for their athletes. They wanted to have return to running guidelines, return to sport guidelines that were, you know, individualized um, for their athletes. And currently they're coming a little slower than we'd like, but they are in process. And um, actually they might even be out later this year. Um, but the data is coming. Um, but trying to understand a little bit more of what their perspective is, what their needs are. Um, was really important. Oh, so lots to consider then, I guess. Now, I, I can't help wondering, and I was thinking earlier as well, is what percentage of uh, athletes do you know sort of do come back? So we kind of hear more and more these sort of examples of people that have, you know, come back and won the Olympic marathon after having two children. And and some people, you know, uh, what was, I can't remember the name of the, I think she's from Trinidad, uh, 400 meter hurdle or something. What's her name now? I should know her name. Anyway, she she was like, you know, two months after having a baby, she got second in the world championship 400 or something. Mm -hmm. Do you know how how often is it that, do you, do you know sort of how often do athletes keep going? Do they do better? Do they do worse? Do they do the same afterwards? I mean, it's probably so many factors to consider. And we hear the sort of celebrated examples where they come back and win a gold medal when previously they'd won two bronzes. 
you know, but it doesn't mean you're going to be better. And you've got so much more, you know, so much less time. Maybe they have to train more efficiently. You know, who knows what's going on? Do you know much about that at all? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a big part of the work that um, I've been doing most recently is looking specifically at elite athletes. Um, Going back again, systematic review Mm -hmm. back in 2021, Mm -hmm. where we looked at return to sport postpartum. And basically, we don't know how many athletes are retiring um, to be able to start a family. Um, we don't know how many athletes would have continued on if they had the appropriate supports in place and, you know, a supportive sporting organization, coach, teammates, etc. But what we do know is that of those athletes that do come back, that many of them are able to, um, go back to their same level of performance that they had pre-pregnancy. Some of them are exceeding preconception, um, performance levels. Uh, Since the time we published that particular paper, um, there was a study that was looking at um, 37 marathoners um, who were um, training during and then returned to sport afterwards. And they actually found that 70% had their best personal best Mm. performance um, Mm. after childbirth. Um, Trent Stellingworth and Francine DeRoche published a, another cross-sectional, um, or sorry, a survey-based um, study of 42, like the elitest of the elite runners. Uh, and they found that more than half had improved um, performances during or following pregnancy. Um, certainly in both cases, there seems to be an increased risk of having an injury. Um, we suspect okay. that this is due to a very rapid return um, to sport. And that, um, that's why the return to sport guidelines are really important that they're individualized, that they're symptom based and they're graded, uh, not just, well, I had a baby today, six weeks later, well, you're cleared and you're good to go and you can run Mm -hmm. a marathon if you want to, which is what we had up until very recently. Um, so the data is really starting to support that at least in certain, um, sports that it's, um, you can actually have, a we like to call a pregnancy advantage uh, where with all the physiological changes that are happening during pregnancy, you have a 50% increase in blood volume. You're going to have, you know, a 30 to 40% increase in cardiac output, um, you know, over the course of pregnancy, those adaptations um, are going to reverse, but they don't disappear postpartum. And so you have a more efficient cardiovascular system, which may confer benefit, especially in the endurance um, sports. Oh, I had no idea about that. I just assumed things went back. So you're saying, what, for years later, they have still a higher, what, maximum cardiac output or higher stroke volume? Or what do they have? So we don't know how long these effects persist. Um, there was a study that was done many, many years ago that showed that there were changes or differences that persisted um, at one year postpartum. Um, we did interviews with coaches and, you know, those in the elite athletes um endurance sports some suggested that they're seeing the first year maybe they're not returning to performance but it's really that second year mm-hmm. um where they are whether or not it's directly related to only the cardiovascular system i doubt it mm-hmm. um but there seems to be some sort of advantage and we you know i also worked with sport canada to develop some sport policy for canadian athletes and so we did speak to a large number of national sporting organizations I didn't make up the pregnancy advantage uh, Mm -hmm. title Uh, that actually came from one of the coaches, Um, but they're seeing it on the ground. We're seeing these performance um, benefits 
in the mm -hmm. research. Well, I wonder if part of it's the uh, pain threshold after going through well, pregnancy. Well, it could be that. I, you know, as an academic, you know, a lot of my predecessors waited up until, you know, after having tenure and whatever else to be able to have children. We don't see that as much anymore. I had my kids earlier. Um, and I actually, from a personal perspective, I am much more focused and efficient <laughs> in my mm -hmm. day um, than I was before I had kids. And we've heard from athletes the same sort of thing, that they are they're focused. They don't do the extraneous stuff. They take mm -hmm. care of what they have to do for the training. And then they, they go back and uh, they take care of the other aspects of their lives. Yeah, so more efficient. But yeah, mm -hmm. with the pain threshold, I was thinking, because we've had um, I've done a whole bunch of muscle biopsy studies. Oh. And uh, at one stage we've, um, oh yeah, I've had 33 myself. <laughs> at one stage, um, usually people will say, why would you have so many? Usually it's training new doctors, to be honest, because I, you know, I don't want them to do it on the participants or the students. But so it's been fun. But um, what was I getting at? Yeah. So when we do biopsy studies, we've actually found that that when you do people with type 2 diabetes, and, you know, males and females, you find that the older people tend to complain less about, you know, mm biopsies and especially the females and i've had several comments where it's like oh compared to childbirth this is nothing you know so i, I, was, I was getting at with the pain threshold i guess if you've had a, especially a very difficult pregnancy and childbirth you might be like all right this doesn't hurt as much as i thought you know if you're a marathon runner it's like you know so slightly flippant but maybe you know might might have something to it who knows? Yeah. I mean, again, there, there's so much we just don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, we almost don't know what we don't know yet. All right. Now I've thought the other thing I thought about was maybe diet. So naturally when you're pregnant, you're eating more and you may, might be eating differently with various <laughs> cravings and things. Do we know much about, you know, are there dietary considerations for pregnant, especially athletes, I guess. Do we, mm. have people thought about that really, you know, or. Um, you know what? Many, many people have thought about it. Um, they're all much smarter than me. I ran away from dietetics and uh, have a very superficial understanding for sure. So, um, you know, I can only give a really superficial answer. Um, but basically, we know that, you know, when you are pregnant, that there's going to be an increase in energy expenditure. It's not actually as much as you might think. Uh, first trimester, the uh, caloric expenditure is actually trivial. And mm. then by the time you get to the end of pregnancy, it's equivalent of two glasses of milk. Um, so the energy expenditure oh, of pregnancy okay. that you need to be intaking um, mm. is, we, we it's not twice as much it's as you think. It's healthy. Yeah, you're not eating for two <laughs> type of thing. Yeah, yeah. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, but then when we talk about the combination with sport, um, you know, it's really important to think about whatever your energy expenditure in your training and competition is actually going to be. Um, and so definitely working with a dietitian is really, really important. Um, maintaining hydration is essential when you're pregnant. Um, dehydration can cause uterine contractions, uh, which is something we try to avoid earlier in pregnancy. Um, you know, making sure that you have a sufficient iron. A lot of um, pregnant women will end up having low iron during her pregnancy. It's physiological anemia, partially due to the fact that the blood volume is increasing, partially because, you know, there's increased um, iron needs. And so even postpartum, we actually see that um, a larger number of individuals are experiencing 
um, anemia postpartum as well. So if you're an athlete, taking care of your diet nutrition is really, really essential. It is for all of us. Um, but when your performance and your livelihood is dependent on it, it's even more essential. Yep. Yep. That makes sense. Now, Mark, again, asked a question. It's, it's quite a specific one. We may not actually know, you know, may not know the answer to this one. Can supplementation of, for example, EPA fatty acids augment the benefits of exercise for the fetus? And to what extent can exercise compensate for a poor diet? I don't know. But, mm. but um, you know, the old sort of, um, can you out, outrun a poor diet mm. um, in terms of the fetus and the mother? I don't know if you thought or if anyone's looked at that. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. It's certainly one that I think we should try to understand a little bit better. Um, but at this point in time, I yeah. have no idea. Yep, yep. Fair enough, too. Um, what about the effect of age? So has anyone looked at, I don't know, exercising and, and you know, when people start worrying about after 40 and things like that, has that been looked at at all? Yeah, so with the guidelines and the systematic reviews that we did, uh, one of the key questions that we, or subgroup analyses that we tried to do was looking at, um, you know, was there a difference if you exercise before you were 35 or after you were 35? And mm -hmm. not a single study at that particular point in time had published on the effects of um, age, okay. the exercise effects on, uh, or sorry, the age effects on exercise. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about age in pregnancy, because we're actually talking about really young, you know, otherwise healthy individuals, um, but they're on what's considered on the older end of things um, in terms of um, becoming pregnant. Once you cross this 35 magical threshold, so I was 36 with my um, second pregnancy. I was actually very annoyed at the physician who called me geriatric at that point in time. What? Um, no the terminology way. is awful and we have That's to be ridiculous. But the yes. epidemiological... <laughs> Yeah, right. I could go on a bit. You're not so, even geriatric now. I'm not even not geriatric, but that's starting to push it. Maybe I am, yeah. but anyway, yep, okay. But when we talk about, you know, chronological age, when we talk about 35 or over 40, there are age-associated increased risks for developing things like preeclampsia and gestational diabetes. We shouldn't be calling anybody who's pregnant geriatric. I think it's no. terrible. But, I think by definition, if you're pregnant, you're not geriatric, surely. Goodness. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> but we'll save that conversation for another mm. day. Um, lived experience here. But where was I going with this? Right. So if you have an increased risk for developing gestational diabetes and preeclampsia, there is the possibility that engaging in exercise, whether or not it's for the first time or the first time for a while, might confer additional benefit. But the data isn't there to support it. Okay. All right. Now, what I like to do, I've started asking this question. Um, uh, there are controversies in the field. So what I'm getting at there is, um, is, is everything you've said pretty much uh, recognized by other researchers and things? Or is there like someone where you think, oh, well, if, actually, if this person was was being interviewed, they'd say, say it very differently. Is, is there anything we've talked about? Because I can't obviously know all the areas that, that I interview people about. Is there anything we've talked about which is kind of controversial and you say, well, actually, some people think this and that? Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, the the hit the high intensity work oh, that yeah, I did yep, yep. and the heavy lifting we work, um, you know, that is highly novel. That is brand new, coming out. Um, 
you know, in terms of controversy, I think the biggest question is those are single studies, relatively small because it's a physiological study. Um, you know, we definitely need, and I fully acknowledge and strongly recommend we do more studies looking at it. We need to look at the chronic effects as well. And we need those prospective studies to be able to better understand it and get that high quality evidence so that we can actually get it into the guidelines. Or if I am completely off base and these data are wrong, that also needs to be demonstrated. Um, I think the biggest controversy, at least in you know, my standpoint is that there are such massive gaps in our knowledge about exercise during pregnancy, it's even worse in the postpartum period. That's where my PhD was. It's it's scary. But when we talk about pregnancy, there's a lot we don't know. And there have been limitations placed over a long period of time in terms of what we can and should be doing. But we can't be making guesses about mm. what the effects actually are. We actually need to do the high quality data collection to be able to test the hypothesis and understand whether or not these activities are safe or not. Whatever limitation you place, whether it's you shouldn't do high intensity, you shouldn't do long duration, you shouldn't lift heavy, you shouldn't exercise with a certain contraindication, people will stu still do it if the evidence isn't strong enough to support not doing it. True. Great. All right. And we've got the, naturally there's the same problem that we've talked about. I've talked about with several people. So Abby Smith, Ryan, uh, Kirsty Elliott sale and uh, someone else, sorry. Um, that, you know, there's not enough studies done in females already. And now this is a subset. So I'm sure there's, there's it's greatly, you know, under studied. Mm -hmm. Oh no, yeah. absolutely. And I mean, a lot of it, you know, when I was in grad school, I, I was often asked, why are you doing women's health? We have all this data on exercise physiology 20 years ago. Why would you think it's any different? Mm. And when we talk about a small population that only affects about 80% of all 50% of the, you know, I, I, I'm really messing that one well, up. It's a hundred percent. It's actually a hundred percent because all of us were born from a, yeah, exactly. Ooh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. All so of us were born. So. It's like 80% of all women across the world are going to become pregnant at some point in their life. So it's a it, mm. pregnancy is a pretty significant event, um, mm. but we just don't know enough about it. There's got to be a lot more work done. Um, but there are two sort of things that I see. One, we absolutely need the funding. Um, and then the second thing, there have been studies that have been put out that if you have a female PI, they are more likely to do work with female-based research and train female trainees that are then going to go on and do more female-based research. Certainly not the only answer. We need to have broad spread experiences um, and um, to be able to do those studies, um, but we need the funding and we need more people just working in the areas in yeah. general. Absolutely. Now, one thing I've started asking as well is, um, you know, a large reason why I started Inside Exercise is I want people to get their information from the research experts in exercise rather than from influencers, yes? So I know we're both on Twitter and there's a lot of stuff that goes around in there, some misinformation and things. What I've started asking people is, you know, is there something in your area, which we've probably touched on already a little bit, but is there something in this area we're discussing 
that it's like a pet gripe of yours that that you know people get wrong on social media or just generally um yeah i mean the big thing you know for me is this persisting idea that you can't go above 140 beats per minute um it's been around for 40 years it's constantly coming back um when we look at people who are going above that and they're still within the guidelines, uh, they get slammed on social media. It can be pretty awful. And I think that it's important that we need to do the research to be able to support people's choices in their pregnancy. So, so who's getting slammed? People that are doing high intensity stuff? Uh, no, people who are going above sort of a moderate intensity. If you're doing more than walking, so yeah. Um, people, you know, you hear on Twitter, there was like something I was reading on Twitter very recently where um, somebody was pregnant and she was out for a run and people were stopping their cars oh. to tell her to stop. You're going to kill your baby. Um, stuff Rosenthal, really? um, I'm saying her name improperly. Um, she is very active on Instagram. Um, she was a uh, like the three time mom, um, but also an Olympic marathoner for the United States. And she had huge backlash. There was a um, uh, there was a very short video talking about all of the comments that she got, and oh. she was doing something that was actually very healthy and beneficial, not only for her physical health but also for her mental health as well. Wow. Okay. So these things are you know it kind of reminds you of back in the was it nineteen seventies or something? They, they said women shouldn't be doing marathons, they shouldn't perspire, and all this stuff. Sounds like what did you say? 1200 BC, they were closer. Oh, 1400 BC. <laughs> and what did they, what were they saying? That What were they saying then again? Yeah. So back in 1400 BC, um, there's like a snippet that's in the, the book of Exodus, which is basically that um, the slave women had better oh, pregnancy right. and delivery outcomes than the sort of higher born. Um, Isn't that great? Mm. Isn't that wild? That's and wild, we're finally yeah. getting back to, you know, mm. those times. Not that we want to go back to those times. There are other issues that cause pregnancy complications, but recognizing yes. the powerful preventative effects of physical activity um, during pregnancy for mental, physical health, um, and exactly. well-being. Well, this is almost a takeaway message time, but I might just have an official because I'd like to finish up with <laughs> some takeaway messages that you want people to get. Mm -hmm. One is to go back to 1200 BC and look at what they were saying. But yeah. um, so, so what are some takeaway messages you want, want to get out there and make sure people get from this chat? Mm -hmm. You know, I think the biggest one is that we really have to change our view. And I've said this a couple of times, we have to change our view away from what are the potential harms of being physically active within the current recommendations um, to what are the harms of not being active. Mm -hmm. Um there is extensive, strong evidence out there that engaging in physical activity before, during, after pregnancy uh, is associated with many health benefits. Um, there are lots of caveats that we need to highlight, contraindications um, being one of them, focusing on being within the guidelines. Um, if you go beyond them, um, that's when you should be speaking to your healthcare provider, but we are going to be coming out with much better evidence uh, in the next year or two. There's some really exciting work that's coming out. Right. All right. Now, just just one thing I've been meaning to say, and you just said physical activity, exercise, we're tending to mm -hmm. use them interchangeably a little bit. Yes. 
Can we just sort of just talk about that a little bit? So, you know, physical activity is more, I guess, going for a walk. And do you want, do you want to just explain that mm. again? Uh, so physical activity is crossing a broad spectrum of activities across the intensity spectrum. So it includes light activities, which would be, you know, walking around your house, doing dishes, getting dressed, that sort of thing, into the modern intensity to vigorous intensity zones, which is where we think of exercise. So exercise is a component of physical activity. Mm -hmm. So if we just, again, just to summarize, if we can just say, are there benefits, proven benefits of low, moderate, and high? Or would you say the high, which is a little bit early right now? Uh, yeah. So I think the high, the really high intensity exercise, uh, it's early. Mm -hmm. But if people are doing it and they want to do it, and athletes are doing it anyway, you wouldn't be sort of discouraging them if they don't have risk factors. Is that right? So I would strongly recommend that they speak to their healthcare provider and get very strong um, guidance from their healthcare provider. It's important to be thinking of a number of different factors. Uh, you need to make sure that fetal growth is appropriate. You have to make sure recovery is appropriate. Um, counting kicks. Um, so making sure that there's, you know, as best as you can is really, really good. But it's always going to be a balance between your mental and physical health. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I... I have a couple of case studies that I'm working on right now. One's with an ultra marathoner, one's with a pro cyclist who trained throughout their pregnancy. Um, we need to get those data to be able to see what happens on sort of those more extreme um, levels of activity that we don't have really in the literature yet. There are a couple of cases, um, bits and pieces that are available, but really need better evidence. Um, but I do hope that we are going to have some better recommendations uh, for those extremes of activity soon. And then hopefully their health provider actually knows they're not just going to say, oh, don't do it. So maybe they should come along with this podcast. I don't yeah. think the doctor will watch the whole podcast, but maybe the takeaway messages. <laughs> okay. mm -hmm. Yeah, right. no, absolutely. And education to the healthcare providers is um, one of the key take-homes of that qualitative study I talked about. Um, and so we are you know, moving towards developing much shorter key take-home mm -hmm. messages um, for healthcare providers in particular. Great. Okay. Well, I found this really interesting. Thanks for, for coming on and uh, good luck with everything. And hopefully I'll see you around at some stage. <laughs> that sounds great. Thanks for having me. Okay. See you. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please like, subscribe, pass it on to your friends and colleagues. Check out the other podcasts. Thanks again.